You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. This means that unlike mainstream social media, your trophy pictures won't be censored. They're encouraged. As you spend time on Go Wild, you will earn awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, and big discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex. You will even earn $10 just for signing up. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. You're listening to The Western Rookie, a hunting podcast full of tips, tricks, and strategies from seasoned Western hunters. There are plenty of opportunities out there. We just need to learn how to take on the challenges. Hunting is completely different up there. I've harvested 26 big game animals. You can fool their eyes, but you can't fool their nose. The 300 yards back to the road turned into three miles back the other way. It's always cool seeing new hunters go and harvest an animal. I don't know what to expect. If there's anybody I want in the woods with me, it'll be you. Welcome back to another episode of the Western Rookie Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Krabs, and I've got my good buddy, Tyler Schmidt, on the line today. Tyler is from back in North Dakota. We met when I was living there, and he is a deer hunting fool. Loves to deer hunt, does both whitetails, and has been doing a lot of North Dakota mule deer lately. And so that's probably what we're going to talk about today is the North Dakota mule deer hunting and just see what Tyler's perspective is and, and what he's learned and his experience along the way. With that, how you doing, buddy? Things are good. Waiting for fall to get here. That's uh, right around the corner. Oh, Usually yeah. July fourth. July fourth is my uh, kind of my time to start scouting, which we haven't hit that yet. So it's right around the corner, though. Yeah, yeah. I've got my I've got Tacticam, the new cell cams from Tacticam out on our farms, and I'm still waiting for like anything exciting to show up. It's still like nubs, and it's like you're zooming in to like look at this and be like. I can't tell. I can't tell. Yeah, gonna be a good book little, little, I always, I always wait till the fourth. Just to, it's like a national holiday. It's not the fourth of July. It's time to go scout. So yeah, once the well, <laughs> once the fourth of July is over, I mean, it's it's. I mean, we live in like you're not quite as much a lake country, but we're still kind of in the lakes country, and it's summer. Mm-hmm. We get a very. We only get like three weeks of summer up here anyway, so you want to make the most of it. So usually you got weekend plans like July 4th, a couple weekends after that. But then all of a sudden you blink and it's like August and deer season in North Dakota opens up, what, September 1st, August 30th most years? Yeah, usually end of August, 1st of September, which is nice. It's a lot earlier than most states as well, which is a huge, huge perk. Yeah, yeah. Are you, when you said you're doing scouting, are you thinking mostly like whitetails around home or are you going out west to scout mule deer? A lot of that, it's a little bit closer for me with the whitetail and uh, trail cams, all that stuff. Yeah. Um, the scouting for the Western stuff is just over the years of being out in that area for so much and so long, you just really get to know the area that well that you can kind of just jump into it and figure it out. I mean, every year is different, so you can't go off year by year, but it's uh, once you get to know that terrain well enough, you can after a day or two, you can really put in a solid plan of what's going on, which is nice. And usually when we go out there, we're out there for a solid week at a time. I got a two and a half week trip plan this year. So 
Wow. For bow or for rifle? I'll probably end up drawing a white tail tag out there, but then I'll have my bow tag as well. So I'll have bow in one hand, rifle in the other. So yeah, can't beat that. I don't want to burn your spot, but we've talked about it in the past of, of where you're going. Are you, and it's kind of a, it's off the beaten path. I mean, most people, I think drive West until they see their first mule deer and then they put a flag in the ground and hunt there. Right. Like right off the interstate, like, Oh, public land, let's hunt here. And it just gets pounded, you know, within five, 10 miles of the interstate, but you're going way back in. Do you usually hunt that same area every time you go out to the, the badlands or are you bounce spot bouncing? I mean, I'm always spot bouncing. It's especially when we go out there, I'd say if I'm out there for that, big extended period of time you can really really dive in and get to know some of the areas yeah Um, there's no there's no shortages but to your point i mean there's a lot of people that park right off the blacktop and you know go in um that and you always get those people too that drive where they're not supposed to which is utterly annoying but um a lot of a lot of places you can go that are untouched yeah, I remember I when I drew the elk tag in North Dakota, my first thought, I tried to apply like all of our elk hunting knowledge from the true, like the West West Montana, Wyoming. And I was like, all right, draw a map, look for the biggest chunk of roadless area in like where the elk could be. And when I, I drew that map, it happened to be like pretty much where you hunt or where you've hunted in the past and told me about it. And I'm like, all right, perfect. There should be elk in there. There's no roads. It's rugged country. Like, that's where the elk are probably going to get pushed to early season because they can walk there. There's no snow. And so I went there, and I didn't see a single elk track. I saw no sign of elk. But I saw a ton of mule deer up in there. And I think it's probably the same thing. I mean, that like, that country's like, very rugged compared to what you see maybe on the east, like the, I don't know what you would call it, the east side, like as you're coming from Fargo or Bismarck, mm-hmm. the first, when you first hit the Black Hills, it's more like foothills, right? It's it's wheat fields that kind of go into some bluffs. Super easy country for anyone to walk through. And and I think that's like you said, people park on the blacktop and just run in. And when I was up in that country where you hunt, there was no just easy walking in. I mean, it was like two, three miles into some of these spots just to get a glassing knob. And it was like rough terrain on the way too. Yeah. Make, makes it fun though. I, I mean, I thoroughly enjoy it. Um, especially once you do get, get one on the ground that's where the work really does begin. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of that North Dakota deer lottery, it's like now, isn't it? The, for rifle. So, I mean, for people that don't know how that is rifle, it's, I mean, I've hunted a lot of States, you know, growing up in Minnesota everyone gets a tag year after year. It's really easy. We're in North Dakota, the draw, the application deadline was a week or two ago. Okay. And we should find out possibly next Friday or the following week. So I'll know in the next week or two just about those results. But to get a, a rifled mule deer tag in the state of North Dakota, I mean, it's a five, six, seven year wait, sometimes more. Yeah. Which is, which can be frustrating where, a the residents out here in North Dakota, it's every year you can draw for um, mule deer for archery. That is, they have tightened those regulations up for non-residents though. Yeah. I have buddies that try to apply for the bow tag in North Dakota. And depending on what unit you go, like sometimes you can get lucky and draw it every year as a non-resident. 
but not probably in the primo units can you plan to draw every single year. I mean, eventually you're going to run out. Yeah, for archery. For rifle, it's like almost zero. I'm trying that archery, game right now. I mean, it, I got... It's either, yeah, for non-residents, it's uh, go over the counter. You can buy it for whitetail. Yeah. Or anything mule deer. Anything mule deer. doesn't matter the unit. You have to apply. Yeah, some like, of the crappier units, no one else is applying, so you can draw, but then but you're for archery. Yeah. Archery, though, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter the unit. It's, it's yeah. all yeah. or nothing. It's still a lottery. You just might have a better chance of drawing because, like, like way down in the southwest corner of of nope. North Dakota, it's it's all or it's all or nothing for whitetail or for a mule deer for archery. We're talking archery right now, right? Yeah, yeah. You can, yeah. You have to apply it's as not, a non-resident. It's not, it's not. It's not unit specific though. Oh, it's statewide it's, for archery. It's statewide. Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. I see what you're saying now. Yeah, yeah. we're kind of. Yeah, it is kind of North Dakota is kind of confusing the way they do everything. Um, it's one of the only states where you can get a buck tag for each weapon type, not just like a statewide buck tag and then, you know, use whatever weapon is legal at the time. I have a coworker from back in Fargo that one year shot all three. He got his mule deer tag, he got his whitetail archery tag, and then he got a whitetail muzzleloader tag. And so that's confusing. The way they break up like what non-residents can apply for in their areas very confusing the way they do their points is almost a, impossible to predict your odds yeah it's it's complicated so for people that are coming from out of state it's it can be challenging the, the more pride argue the most challenging thing is just getting your hands on a tag yeah um but then again it's there's it's not just north dakota there's other states that are doing it too there's, i used to hunt south dakota yeah a lot as well and south dakota just open up a kind of a North Dakota policy as well and uh, points to get in. I didn't, I didn't even get any, anything this year for South Dakota and I applied and I usually get a tag every year down there. So yeah, North Dakota and the, and then the way they do their point scaling, I mean, nothing is as easy as Colorado, right? That's the easiest. It's either an over the counter tag or it's preference point. Whoever has the mm-hmm. most points gets it. If there's a hundred tags and one guy has max points, he gets one, and then 99 go to the next bracket, right? And if there's 13, you know, all of a sudden now you're down to 86. And it, you just know. You, you can predict if you're going to draw or not with a lot of confidence. North Dakota, what is it? Like you get, you get one point for your current application year. Plus, mm-hmm. if you're from like Zers, if you have one to three points, they square it, right? So if you got three points and you apply and you go into this year's app, you get three squared, which is nine plus your current year to 10. But the year you hit four, all of a sudden they start cubing it. So now you get, if you have four points, you go from 10 the previous year to four cubed, which is 64, plus your current year, which is 65, right? And then they throw all of those in a bucket and they just start drawing numbers. So the guy with no points could draw. The guy with 13 could not draw. There's no way to predict it. I tried to do some analysis on it one time to try to figure out if I'm going to draw or not. And I basically just went through the entire stats sheet of what they said, how many people applied. I did all the points, and then I just broke it up into a percentage. Like, like if you have ten points, you still only have a sixty-five percent chance of drawing. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so that's, right. that's where a lot of people are getting smart with all those, you know, platforms out there. You know, go hunt, hunt and fool, all that stuff, where they just kind of stack the odds in their favor, and and even for like, let's say me, if I was a Minnesota resident, I wanted to 
get out and mule deer hunt every year, you'd almost have to get to that point of picking, Hey, this, this will be the year I probably archery hunt Montana or whatnot in South Dakota. You almost have to have that revolution just going because to say, Hey, every year you can do the same state over and over again is near impossible. Yeah, we we run up into that issue a lot with our elk group, and we have a couple issues going on with our elk group. But the primary one, we started going to Wyoming and loved it. We have great success. We really learned that unit. Like you said, you go back to the same spot every year, and you just start to pick that unit apart. You understand how they're using the mountain um, year after year. Well, Wyoming is starting to be like a four-year draw cycle to just get a general tag. So now we're like, well – we used to just go Wyoming, Montana, Wyoming, Montana. Now we can't do that because Wyoming's a four-year draw. So then we would do Wyoming, Montana, Montana, Wyoming, Montana, Montana. Well, now Montana's screwing us up because now that's like a one- or two-year draw. You can't draw that every year anymore either. So now we're this year we're going to Colorado because, like you said, you just got to start cycling states. Otherwise, you're not going to get to go every year. Mm-hmm. That's the first issue. The second issue is our group's too big. So – you can only have a party size of five in Montana and you can only have a party size of six in Wyoming. And we have like eight guys. Oh, that makes it really tough. Cause now you're doubling the. Doubling the chances of not drawing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Right. It's basically a squared chance of trying to get everyone a tag. Um, Have you guys been successful getting the whole group together? Up until last year, it worked every time. Last year, my brother, we split the group of seven for Montana. My brother and I went, and we tried the zero-point strategy. I don't know if you've heard that in Montana, but there's like a zero-point loophole in Montana. So we did that. The other group, I think they went in with a one-point average because somebody in their group had a point, which put them out of the zero-point pool but not yet into the full one-point. They were in that like less-than-one-point pool. And so everyone bought a point, I believe, and they did not draw. And so they ended up having to go to Colorado, and me and my brother got stuck in Montana. So, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't always work when you're starting to split groups. I mean, we used to be able to say, okay, this guy and this guy have four points apiece, so we'll put these other guys that only have one point with them, and they should draw, and then everyone in this other group's got three-point average, so they should draw, or something like that. We always used to be able to pull it off until now. Now it's just getting too complicated. Yeah, uh, it's Yeah, it makes things – Makes things frustrating. I mean, I'm happy to see it. it's becoming extremely popular. And they always say just with technology and whatnot, us as hunters have become so much more successful. So I'm happy that it's being regulated a little bit. Um, the only other workaround that I've seen for it is paying someone a significant amount of money just to guarantee a tag and whatnot. But it's like, that's frustrating at the same time as well. So, Oh, yeah, the landowner. You're talking land, like landowner tags or, or going guided mm-hmm. or something like that? Guided, something like that, or even not even doing a guided hunt, but you can pay those outfitters just for a tag. I've yeah. seen. Yeah. That if you got the money for sure, but you know, some of those, like you said, you can go on two or three or you, like for you, when you're just in-state hunting, most of the fall, you can probably cover all of your in-state hunting for the year with the cost of that one oh. landowner tag. Yes. hundred percent. So now how do you justify that? You're like, well, do I go for five days with a little better odds or do I have the whole season for the same price? I'll take the whole season. That's because yeah. for me, it's, you know, you have those people out there that hunt and they go, ah, I went a weekend or two and they consider themselves a hunter, which I mean, good for you. That's all for it. But you know, for me, it's, 
you know, going out weekend after weekend after weekend. And now I'm going to spend two weeks out there and it's, it's nonstop. I mean, it's, it's, it's the whole season, right? So for me, it's starting end of August, first part of September, it's to the end of the year. That's what makes it fun. Yeah. Yeah. And being able to spend two and a half weeks out there, are you guys tenting or do you have a cabin set up or what's your guys' plan when you go out there for that long? We have a cabin that we've been staying at for the last, oh boy, it's probably been going on 15 years now. We've been staying at the same place. Nice. Is it like someone uh, in the group's got an in? I mean, all of us kind of, it's, it's a landowner out there that he markets it and everything. Um, but we just went so many times that sad to say we kind of get preferential treatment, but maybe a little bit. Yeah. Um, just for when we're going and stuff and they've been, they've been great to us. So makes us feel like we're home when we're out there. A lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, camping in that country is some of my favorite country to camp in. And it's, it's, I don't know what it is about it. The weather is usually always great. I mean, yeah. The best part about hunting the desert is it never rains. So I mean, every now and then you'll get a day or two of rain or like a system that moves through. But for the most part, I think I've spent, I don't know, five, six hunts out there. And I've only got rained on seriously twice. Yeah, no, that sounds about right. Going out there for that extended period, though, you know, it is and you're walking around and you get all sweaty and uh, you're miserable. I just want to sit down and shower. And so having some of those luxuries just make it make it so much nicer. Yeah, I mean, we. I just had John Barklow on the podcast a couple episodes before this one, and and he's the he's the well, he's part of product development for big game, the big game line at Sitka, but he mm-hmm. also own does a survival class, and 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 he talks a lot about like the dude was also in special forces for twenty years teaching operators how to survive, so he's as hard as nails, right? I mean. <laughs> harder than Teflon. And he was even talking about like comfort's a huge deal. Like if you want to be successful, comfort goes a long ways. Like how well are you sleeping at night? You know, how well are you, you know, recovering from the day before all that stuff adds into it. It's not just how tough are you? Um, mm-hmm. which is, really- oh, I completely agree. Yeah. That and another thing is, is for a chunk of that trip, I'll actually be by myself, which is fine. And I've been out there by myself so much, so many other times, but I, there's been a time or two where I've been out there by myself and I've camped it alone. It's a little eerie when you've got the, you know, coyotes screaming at you and those mule deer as stupid as they can be at. Sometimes they get curious and come into camp and you can hear them running around. It's yeah. been a number of nights I've been out there. Just haven't slept the best when you're just tenting alone. So, so a uh, funny story. I took Abby out there for what was basically our first real date i mean we had known each other a little while but you know and so we were hanging out you know back home we'd go to a movie or something but that was like our first big thing together i took her out west because i needed to scout for elk she we wanted to hang out i'm like well let's do two birds one stone you like backpacking and hiking and camping i need to go find an elk to shoot this fall why don't you just come with me and so we me her and the dog went out and uh we camped west river um way up by the Elkhorn Ranch. And so we get out there and we're driving and it's hot. Like it's, I can't remember. I think it's late June. It's like a hundred degrees. It's just miserable. 
And even when we get there, it's dusk. And she goes, hey, I'm looking off to the side like we always are when we're driving around in hunting country. We're never looking at the road, right? I'm looking for elk off the side of the mountain. And she looks up and she goes, hey, there's a deer. And I look up and like 20 yards in front of the truck that we're driving 50 miles an hour stands a a full-size cow elk right in the middle of the road. And I'm like slam on the brakes, skid across, and then a whole herd of elk run right across the road, like 60 cows. There's no bulls. And I'm like, oh, that's not a deer, babe. That's a that's an elk. That's what we're here to find, which never happens. I've never had one in, on the road before. And so, How much credit did you give her for uh, spotting it out? <laughs> well, a lot of credit because we would have been stuck if we didn't. I would have T-boned this thing. Um and so we set up camp, and it's still, I mean, it's like 10 p.m., it's dark, and it's kind of eerie when you're driving in in the dark because it seems like it's never-ending, and you can't see a thing, right? I mean, you're making all these turns, and you're going all these different directions, but you can't see a thing because it's pitch black out there. We set up our tent. It's, like, still 90 degrees, right? It's dropped 10 degrees, but it's, like, we're still sweat. I'm in gym oh, shorts yeah, and a cutoff, God. and I'm sweating. So we go, to, we go to bed on an air mattress with, like, no blankets, we wake up at like 2 a.m. and it's like we can see our breath. It was so cold. And then we did not sleep the rest of the night. We did not plan for it getting as cold as it was supposed to get at night. Like we were just shivering. We were trying to get the dog to sleep on the air mattress to warm us up. And terrible. It was so cold. So we didn't sleep at all. Not comfortable. We got up extra early to go hit our glass knob just because we were so cold. We wanted to start moving. And so, um, yeah, I can hear you there. Like comfort is a huge thing. If you're doing that and you're not sleeping for five nights and you're alone, like your mind's going to start thinking about home. You're like, well, there's probably some work I could get done. I could just go bow hunt back home. Mm-hmm. You know, I, why, what am I doing out here? And that's the first thing that goes when you're not comfortable, the mind starts thinking about home. Exactly. Where, you know, for us, we have the little cabin situation out there. It's, it makes life. It's just, it's a second home out there, right? We're hunting. It's get to know all those people. It's, it's a lot of fun. Well, it's yeah. Plus it's just more fun when you don't have to go back to camp and work for another hour. Like when you're tenting, you get back to camp. It's like another hour of work. You're cooking in a headlamp. You're, you know, in and out of coolers, in and out of stuff. It's just work. If you go back to a cabin, cause we've done it. We've got Airbnb cabins and elk camp. You get back to the cabin, someone throws a, a pan of hot dish in the oven, you crack a beer, mm-hmm. you just put your feet up, you start joking and laughing about the day, and it's just a lot more fun in camp when you don't have to worry about as many camp chores. Oh, 100%. Probably the besides camping, the other thing that I find that's can be a little challenging out there is just, you know, getting around, and it's not necessarily, you know, driving and whatnot. It's, oh, I want to go check out this spot that's three miles off the beaten trail, and it could take you an hour and a half to to get to that, right? You've been there, seen that. Yeah. Come up to it and you go, holy shit, how am I going to get over this now? You got to wiggle your way back and forth. Yada, da, da, da. And before you know it, you get back to that spot and you're like, if I even got something back here, like, would I be able to even get it out? Right? Yeah. So another thing that I've been seeing in the last year or two is, they have all those like off-road trek bikes, which are kind of cool. So imagine being yeah. able to, you know, bike someplace while you're, you know, hunting, which is kind of a cool concept. Instead of, you know, if you go for a walk, you have all that gear and stuff. I mean, it's figure your pace, your, 
you know, taking it easy because you're you know, walking 18 minute mile, so to speak. And you're like, no, I'm just going to cruise and jump on a bike. And you're cutting that time into a third. Oh yeah. You can, you can make, you can make ground pretty fast out there. So this year when I go, I might end up taking my bike. It's not one of those really cool, um, off country. Yeah. Bikes it's not like a fat there. tire electric bike, fat tire. And I don't know if you can, <clears throat> I think they were working on the electric side of things. But I think that was still considered a motorized vehicle, motorized vehicle. They weren't, but they were working on getting it to that point where they could, which, I mean, I think it would be fair if you're, as long as you're on a, you know, does like a trail, um, you can't drive a vehicle on there, but um, having some method like that where you can really make way is cool, especially even at night when you're walking out at night. I mean, that just can be pretty redundant when you're just walking and walking and walking and walking and you have an hour to get out and it's. Yeah, you'd want one heck of a headlamp, though, if you're riding that bike around the hills at night. I mean, run into a bike right off a cliff, bike over a gopher hole, run into a dead cow. I mean, there's a lot of things you can run into. What I'd, I'd probably, if I was doing something like that, though, I'd be on like a you know, cold path or a trail or something like that yeah. where it's well, somewhat established. Yeah, I mean, even so, even if you're on flat ground, the easiest walking there is. If you take a bike, you're gonna move way faster for way less energy, and you're gonna save your joints. Mm-hmm. I mean, like even if it's just you bike down the road because you don't want to drive your pickup wherever you're going, or or you know anything downhill is free. I mean, literally free. If you're walking downhill, you're still burning energy. You're still hitting your. You're probably hitting your joints a little bit harder actually to go downhill. You go downhill on that mm-hmm. bike, you're going to chop off 300 yards without breaking a sweat. I mean, it might even pay to go two miles out of your way to be able to ride the bike the whole way and get done in half the time as walking straight up and over, yet you burnt all those calories and you lost all that time. Exactly. To your point, though, it can be, it can definitely be challenging. Um, last summer I was out there and we rented bikes and went down the Madahe trail yeah a little ways holy smokes i mean that's <laughs> that was a that was a workout and to your point about doing it at night i mean there would have been some of that where i would have been walking especially because some of that trail it's you've got a two foot wide which is you know enough but you look to the left you know on your right side it's straight up and on your left it's straight down you know 30 feet and you go this could be very treacherous i wouldn't even like walking that at night much less biking it at night all of a sudden your handlebar clips a rock on the sidewall and all of a sudden you're going head over to handlebars on a two foot wide yeah yeah when i was out there at that point i i did get off and i walked it so i was like uh we're not going to be doing this (laughs) (laughs) that would go a long ways i wonder if you could get like a little car carrier like a kid carrier that worked that you could put like your deer quarters in when you shoot one and bike it out. I wonder if anyone's, I've, I, I'm sure someone's done that. Like they have a kid and they got had, one of those bicycle trailers for their kid and they just had, loaded up their hunting gear. If you had flat ground, I could see it working, but imagine you just going, walking your deer cart out, how strenuous that is with all your gear and everything. Yeah. You would want, you'd almost want like a model that has a single tire, not the, two tire trailer you know like it's it bolts to your bike but there's only one tire on the trailer and it just kind of rides 
And you wouldn't be able to probably, like you said, you probably wouldn't be able to load it up much. But it'd mm-hmm. probably help if you were on a road or on a cow path. Probably be a little easier than backpacking it out. Yeah. That's how most people, you know, and that's, that's probably the biggest thing that I've learned about hunting out there. You make a good point about you harvest something and coming from Minnesota and even those Eastern States, you know, what does everyone do? They either drive up to it or drag it out whole. Yeah. Which right. neither one of those are options in the, in the badlands. No. <laughs> and I remember my, when I went out there for the first, you know, couple times, I remember my first one that I harvested, I literally drug it forever to get it back to the vehicle. You know, I didn't understand the concept of, no, we don't drag these animals out whole. That is just beyond. And the one that I shot last year, it was only a third of a mile from the road, right? Yeah. But the elevation from road to where it was, was incredible. So a lot of people were like a third of a mile, that's it. But it's like, yeah, but it literally after packing out, it was my buddy and I, and we both had packs and just, it was a third mile straight up climb straight up the whole way yikes and we were just dead it didn't i mean it didn't take us all terribly long i bet i don't know maybe 25 minutes if i were to guess something like that and we we, we really like concentrated we're like we're just gonna muscle our way out of here but, i mean that was 25 minutes of just heavy breathing of <laughs> it's I funny mean, you it say was, that yeah um well, it, I know what you're saying, right? Like, you almost feel like people are going to think I'm a wimp because I said it was, like, a really hard 25 minutes or it was a really hard third of a mile. But when you think about it, like, when was the last time you did 25 minutes of weighted box step-ups at the gym? Never? Like, no one has ever done 25 straight minutes of, like, like I've done sets of 50 before with dumbbells and you're on fire, you're burning. And that was, like, two minutes. Yeah, and people, it's it's one of those things, especially if there's two guys. I've never done it alone where I've carried. It, it's not only you're carrying the deer out, but you have all your gear and everything else with you as well. Yeah. So it's usually if you're by yourself, it's easy two trips, and if you have another guy with you, you can you can usually get it done in one haul. Yeah, I shot a whitetail out there, and it was even it was even uh, a worse like well not worse it was even an easier scenario than yours. It was 250 yards flat ground to the truck like i i shot him i was driving i was running out of time i had this was the year that abby would move to the cities for her residency and i was still in fargo so i told her every weekend you have off i'll find a way to come see you because that's like we can only see each other four days a month now and uh i said except for the elk hunt i'm gonna miss a a weekend for the elk hunt because i ain't coming back for that and so i was like okay this is my only weekend off to, to get this tag, you know, the season, I got to go to the cities the other two weekends. And I work during the week. And 10 ticks. So I was running out of time. Driving around looking for good whitetail spots. Saw a nice eight-pointer off the road. Perfect setup. He's in the draw. There's a bluff behind me. It's all public. Backed up. Crawled over the bluff. Shot him. Great. But it's flatland. 250 yards, flatland. I drove the truck right to the bottom, right where the truck crosses the road. I can see the trucks right there. And I thought about it. I'm like, most people would drag this, drag it 250 yards back to the truck, no big deal. But what am I going to do when I get there? Gut it on the side of the road, quarter it on the side of the road, get the entire deer into my truck? Okay, great. Now what am I going to do? Drive it back to my mm-hmm. house in Fargo and gut it in my driveway? Have all the carcass and the bones and the rib cage to get rid of? Or I got to do all that work anyway. 
I could just quarter it right here and only carry out what I need and what I want to keep. And then the whole thing's done. The mess stays in the field, everything. I mean, and it wasn't any harder. Like, I got to do that work anyway. Yeah, but you, you've done that a time, shoe. Remember the first time you quartered one in the field? Do you remember the first time you did it? Well, I do, but it wasn't. it's not fair because the first time I quartered one was with my brother who had already quartered an elk. And so, you know, I kind of saw it. I didn't, I wasn't ever trying to figure it out by myself. I mean, we, no. I've gotten well, better it, since then for sure, but. Oh, hundred percent. The first one I did, I remember, I think I was like a couple months prior. I watched a YouTube video. I'm like, oh, that seems easy. And, <laughs> and there was more hair on the quarters that I pulled than the, the height that I left behind. I feel like it was. Yeah, that was can tough. be, especially if it's an antelope, the antelope are really bad. And if you want to do any type of taxidermy, if you want to do a shoulder mount with the hide, that takes a little bit. You got to be a little careful when you're doing the gutless method Mm -hmm. to do that. But yeah, I I mean, I would do the gutless. Now that I know how to do it, I would do the gutless method, you know, on this new farm Abby and I just bought. We're going to close here in 10 days. It's 40 acres of some of the nastiest Minnesota uh, willow swamp you've ever seen. Right? I mean, it's... Pure habitat. Great for hunting. But if I shoot a buck and he dies on the back corner, it's a parcel that, like, everything, it's, there's a road around, like, a big country block, like 600 acres. And so the there's no road on the other side of the 40. That's just pro- more private land. Like, it's not any easier to go out that way. It's got to get dragged across the whole 40 back to our <laughs> house. I'm like, I'm not going to drag it through this swamp for 800 yards. I'm just going to quarter it and make two trips if I have to. Mm-hmm. so i'd even do it at home because there's no right now there's no four-wheeler trails anywhere and i don't even own a four-wheeler so we'll have to figure these things out bit by bit but in the meantime i'm not dragging that deer 800 yards through a nasty willow swamp I, i'm done with that. Yeah. that that is something that every hunter should it's a tool. know how to do yeah because yeah, i even you know way back when even minnesota i remember there was you know hunting these big hunts that i do dragging dragging deer out it's like you know, that's just the norm, you know, growing up, that's all you did. But there's times I could think of, you know, half a dozen times where like, just for me to quarter this animal out would have been yeah. so much easier. Grant the one you're hunting, I was hunting with family back then. If I would have showed up with a massive pack, they would have been like, where the heck is the deer? <laughs> yeah. <know? laughs> they would have been a little confused. Yeah. My family probably would have too. Now they would get it for sure. Depending on where we shoot it. Most places at our family, like tradition farm, we can get a four-wheeler within 100 yards. So now it's kind of like, okay, do I drag it 100 yards, get it in the ranger, then we get it to the shop and hoist it up and do it that way? Because that is cleaner. I mean, there's no argument that's going to be cleaner. But if it's 400 yards to the four-wheeler, then I might start thinking about quartering it. And, and, you know, John Barclow said a really good line, knowledge doesn't weigh anything. It's not – you don't have to add it to your pack and carry it around with you, right? Like, so it's just a tool. You learn how to do it, and it's free to bring with you on every hunt from here on out. Mm-hmm. Another thing that people don't do enough, and I wish I would have started doing this from day one, was caping every deer that I harvested, right? Like, even those ones that you have behind you, you just plaque them, or even a, if I'm doing a European mount, just learning how to do that is such a valuable tool. And not many people know how to do that. Oh yeah, I well, I get it. I mean, it isn't easy. That's that's why I pay my taxidermist if I can. 
But now, especially, yeah. you get into like legal issues. Like you can't oh. bring it home and yeah, let you, your tax nervous do it. Yeah, you have to. But that's the thing. Like if I, you know, last year that mule deer that I shot, you know, I wasn't shoulder mounting or anything, just doing a European mount on it. So I'm like, well, this would be great practice. Yeah, I screwed up a couple things on it, but um, I would feel confident right now if I had one down. I'm like, hey, we have to cape this thing out. I would be able to do it. It'd probably take me 10 times longer than a taxidermist that does it all the time, but yeah. I would I would know the steps and everything needed. It took me two and a half hours to cape my bowl out the face. Just going from like where we cut the head to bring back to camp and then back to my house in North Dakota. So the reason was my taxidermist is in Minnesota, and I shot the bull in North Dakota, and I lived in North Dakota. Well, the law mm-hmm. says I can't transport it across state lines, and the taxidermists, they got their hands pretty well tied. Like, they can't just, like, take it under the radar because if they get caught, they'll lose their license. I mean, they're like, I can't take this with the hide. You got to do something. I can drive to your – like, sometimes they'll say, I'll drive to your house in North Dakota and cape it for you there. Yeah. But that's a it's, long drive. So I had to learn how to yeah. do it myself. It took two and a half hours. Granted, I was being extremely careful because this is a once-in-a-lifetime bull. But – it's not easy. Like you said, like you got to learn. I had multiple phone calls with different taxidermists. Like, how do I do this? Tell me how to do this before I get started. And, um, yeah, they've even tightened those regulations since you've had that. Cause that unit that you shot that elk in, you can't even leave that unit right now. Really? I shot it. that elk, uh, in four B. I thought that was more Northwest corner. No, they've that whole western part right now is oh, really? mule deer at whitetail everything. Yeah, you cannot take it out of that unit without do. Okay, so I'd have to do it back yeah. in camp, which is still better than the side of the mountain. But like you said, it it's at least watch a few YouTube videos if you're going to a unit where that's an issue and you want to cape it. At least watch some YouTube videos. Better yet, like you said, practice before you go. Cape out a doe. Mm-hmm. Cape out a little buck. Um, buddy shoots a doe offered to just, Hey, can I have the head and practice caping it out? It, it's not hard. Nothing about it is like mathematically hard to figure out what you should do. It's, it's intuitive what you should do, right? You yeah. cut up the spine to where you're going to cut the head off and you either do a seven cut or a Y cut to each pedicle, right? I do the Y, I do a Y cut yeah. seven cut. You yeah. go up to one and then you go straight across to the other, the Y you split just like a Y go up to both. Put a screwdriver in your kit, a flat screwdriver in your kit, because you're going to have to wedge that sucker around. It's tight into that burr. And that part takes a lot of time. But just do, go slow. Do it carefully. Once you get that off, go down to the ears. Make sure you're clear. And then you just cut the ear canal, right? Make sure you've got the hide done far enough. And you just cut the ear canal. My taxidermist always said, just don't worry about the ears. We'll take care of getting the ears Um caped yeah. out ears, no ears you just cut those off like you said the uh the eyes can be a little tricky sometimes the eyes a big one you got to make sure yeah. you get in there and get it deep enough that you give your taxidermist i mean the moral of the story the summary is on every cut give your taxidermist extra room to play you know don't be like oh this is all he needs and cut it off well that might not be all he needs you might pick a you know if you pick a pedestal left turn you're going to need a lot of front shoulder on that you know left side so you you know i always cut it 6 inches farther back than where my tax taxidermist says it's okay sometimes i'll give him the whole damn cape i mean yeah, two I of them too. i don't care <laughs> you yeah, know you get it all 
but yeah, with those eyes, like you said, you got to go way. It goes the skin goes farther back than you think, and then another one is the mm-hmm. nose, and the tear. Oh, actually, we should back up the tear duct. You got to clean the mm-hmm. tear duct out, or else you'll cut it and rip it. So you got to stick your finger in the tear duct and clean it out, and it's nasty. But then that goes farther back, and a lot of times you can just do more pulling than cutting, especially in that thin skin. My taxidermist always told me like you won't break it if you just give it a nice firm pull and separate it that way. It won't break on you, but if you cut it in the wrong spot, yep, it's not easy to fix. And then you get past, you get the mouth that goes farther back than you think in the back corners. My taxidermist said it's almost easier to do it from the inside. And he, I've walked in on him in his shop while he was caping a deer and he was going like he started on the inside by the teeth and caped it from the inside out first. And then he went back and pulled it off the back. He said, it's almost easier to do it that way. Cause he said, That's when you, when you come from the backside, you're looking at flesh and from that side, everything looks the same. So you might be like, Oh, I'm plenty far enough. And you cut off and sure enough, you gave him a joker smile. Yeah. He don't want that. He is to have a, one of those, uh, those Havilon knives or oh, something like that. You well, for sure. Have. A nice sharpener for sure. Something to sharpen a knife with, but if you can get like, a Havilon with replaceable blades and just start replacing blades. And, and you got that real that's, fine, sharp surgical, so you can get right where you yeah, need to be. I mean, this isn't a tool for your 15-inch buck knife. No, no. I mean, that's that Havilon, I don't think you can – I don't think you can sharpen I, – I can anyways. I can't sharpen a knife as good as that. No. And with how small those blades are, you can put that anywhere. So that's my go-to. Yeah, yeah. And once you get the mouth – caped out you just get past like where your euro mount ends and you just cut the nose off don't worry about the nose <laughs> mm-hmm. just cut straight down like the tip of your euro and that's it but it took me like i mean if it it takes a long time especially if the first time you're doing it, it's on an animal you really care about because you're going to go slow and you're going to be very careful so i would recommend don't do it the way i did it practice ahead of time like tyler yeah. and and make yeah. sure you well, know what you're doing making sure you have everything needed and there's been so many times you know how as you get out there and you go you know i don't even have a bone saw you know how the heck am i gonna get this head off plate off yeah yeah well so that in there's a lot of places you have to you can't cut the euro or, or like there's all kinds of rules like you might have to do a cape the cape the skull plate yeah usually yeah, you can't take that brain matter back and even <laughs> if like if i want a euro mount them um you know how do you get that brain matter out Coat hanger, yeah. Well, I mean, some guys I do the coat hanger. That's such a pain in the butt. The key, though, that I've seen is my taxidermist. What he does is he has a this thing that he created connects to a water hose. There's yeah, an adapter on like there. a pex, a like a quarter inch pex tube that you put on your garden yeah. hose and spray it out. Yep. And then you can, I think you can go the other direction too and put it up. If you get the right size, you can go up the nose like your euro mount and spray backwards. And yeah, but I don't. I think that those are great. How do you get that in the field, though, when you're camping, right? Because you don't have water. You don't have water pressure. I mean, it's good luck getting your water that's bottle where, to do that. That's where you can, I mean. I bought my boil own. kit. Yeah, but even that in western part of North Dakota, if you could find a hose someplace. I mean, there's. Yeah, you could go find a farmer. I've always just brought, like, my fish fryer, and I went to Tractor Supply and got a big oil, or not oil, uh, galvanized tin it almost looks like an oil drip pan but i don't know it's it's oval and it's made like i put my elk head in it fill it with water i turn the fish fryer on and i boil it 
So you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't do that right out there though in the field though, would you? Well, not where the animal dies. So that's now it gets into like what state? I think some parts of Wyoming it, it says you can't move brain matter from the kill site. Other states it says you can't transport it out of the unit. So it, it, now you're starting to look at like what are you dealing with? What's the law state? And that sucks. Yeah. I think there's great opportunity for someone to come up with a system or a product, which is basically like a big bag, like a big garbage bag, heavy duty so it doesn't rip, that's made to like seal on two antlers. And then prove that when you use this bag, like you don't transport CWD, like, you know, CWD is not just falling off as you go. Like that's what they're worried about. Like you're dripping brain matter and just distributing these prions everywhere you walk after you, you know, cut the head off. Like if you could just roll this up, basically a specialized game bag that won't leak four heads, you know, so it clamps on both antlers. It's connected in the middle, completely contained. And and, the, and then they say, if you're using this bag, you get pulled over and you're using this bag properly, you will not get a ticket and you can legally transport it from the kill site directly to your taxidermist. I think that'd be a great market opportunity for someone that's an entrepreneur and can figure out how to do it. Mm-hmm. Then the key is the only thing for them. You just got to make sure the tax terms are taking care of that brain matter properly, which they probably would be. But I think that's their big hang up. Just well, they still have that issue. I don't know how you're going to get away from that issue because you know CWD is everywhere. So what's the difference between that taxidermist disposing your elk from Montana compared to the CWD whitetail from two blocks away? Like you, that part, you got to figure out anyway. And so mm-hmm. I think and. I hopefully they are doing it. I mean, I don't know what that looks like. That's CWD prions tough to kill. I've read studies where they try to do like medical equipment cleaning procedures and they, it, that still doesn't kill it. <laughs> so crazy. Well, the key, key to that though, is just, uh, you know, learning the laws and like yeah. you said, there's so many, so many people that just don't know how to cable you know, play, play, play bliss and ignorance and go, ah, I don't have to worry about that. But that is, that is so key. It's not even state to state. It is unit to unit per that state. And that's, that's, that's a key component is just dealing and taking care of that properly. Yeah. Well, I guess the real solution is only shoot giant animals that you're going to shoulder mount. So you just have to skull cap them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to run with that one. That would be either, good. either shoot them small enough that you're happy with a horn mount like behind me or shoot them big enough that you're going to get a shoulder mount. Just skip that Euro mount range, which is to me like a, a very big range on an elk. Like basically any elk, I'm not going to shoulder mount. I'm probably want a Euro. It's so now I got to figure out how to do that. Right. I got to bring this boiling kit with me everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, that's a lot of stuff. When you guys go out, I mean, you have a trailer, everything. I mean, you can't just pick load that off the back of your truck with everything. Uh, when I go solo, I never bring a four-wheeler, so I have plenty of room usually. Um, when we go with the group, we usually bring, well, depending, depending on group size. Last year when my brother and I went to Montana, we brought a flatbed trailer with his Ranger on it and then his pickup with the topper, and then we put a chest freezer on the trailer. So we had a lot of room. You know, we put stuff in the Ranger cab. We put flat stuff in the box. I mean, mm-hmm. we had a lot of room there, and I did bring it. When we go with our big group, usually it's one 18-foot enclosed trailer, another flatbed trailer. We're probably bringing two to three, maybe four ATVs or UTVs combined, 
and then we got two pickups most of the time. At least one of them's got a topper. So we, I mean, eventually, sometimes we do fill up quite a bit, and we're like, holy shit, how much stuff are we bringing to live in the woods? But um, usually we have enough room. But it, to me, it's like that's that's like part of the what you need. Like you need a bow, you need your whatever you need to bring it home. You, need, you know, you go through all that work, you shoot one, and you're like, ah, oh, I was going to, I really wanted a Euro this, but we decided the, you know, the fish fryer, the, you know what we're talking about, the little Bass Pro fish fryer thing. Uh, well, we decided that was too much space, so we left it at home. Now I'm screwed. Yeah. So it's a it's a lot more work than people think. That's a lot of things to think about when you start hunting the West. Now that we start talking about it, like that's just one small aspect of like things you need to think about in order to have like a comfortable trip. You know, you could obviously maybe find a taxidermist in that unit and figure it out. Now you got to figure out how to go get it again, just like you could. You know, you get a flat tire. I mean, you could figure it out if you didn't bring anything, but it works a lot easier if you bring a jack and some tools yeah. and a spare tire. Yeah, that's why for me, I look at it and I go, God, this uh, me hunting my Western North Dakota. It's just, it's it's nice. It's convenient. I got yeah. my little cabin out there. It's, uh, so it's it's a it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. So what's your what's your favorite chasing mule deer with a rifle or chasing them with a bow? how that works it's when i have the rifle it's it always goes i wish i had my bow with right (laughs) and the reason why is because you you came on the one that's nice but you know with rifle you're always like i want to get one that's even better but your standards size wise for me it's a little lower with the bow so every time i've had the rifle it's like i wish i had my bow with because that would be game over and then when i'm only with my bow it's like i wish i had a rifle tag right now because that thing is huge it's 150 yards away and i don't foresee myself getting any closer yeah that's a real challenge i mean those suckers are smart and it's not some places where they bed it's almost impossible to sneak up on them you know Mm -hmm. you come from the top and you're not going to see it like it's just so steep you can't get a shot it's behind a tree you come from the bottom it's it's a wide open grazed valley. I mean, you can, you can even, you can try belly crawling, but you're belly crawling through two inches of grass. It ain't going to work very well. You know, grass and um, little cactus. I mean, it's, you got a lot of things going against you. Rattlesnakes. Yeah. I mean, everything. So I hear you. I, I did the same thing with the elk. I, you know, when I, since I could use a rifle, I used a rifle and I needed it. I mean, it was a 375 yard shot. And just like you said, I was pretty much, I don't know what you call it, you know, cliffed out, but because it was grazed pasture that I couldn't crawl across, mm-hmm. you know, I was, I was grazed out, I guess I did couldn't get any closer. So I'm glad I had the rifle, but I kind of like what you said. Like I, I would love shooting them with the bow. I mean, if you give me a 150 at 20 yards, I'm going to pick my bow. Oh yeah. Yeah. That'd be great. Anyone would, anyone would hundred percent. So do you hunt? basically the same way for both though rifle versus bow are you getting to a glassing spot finding an animal then making a game plan to get within shot distance of whatever you got in your pack yeah i mean overall it's probably the same initially i was going to say i'm more aggressive with the gun but at the same time probably not just because it's you got to follow the same steps of you know hey we can't be just running around being seen you know all of that um but at the same time when you can shoot three 
400 yards with a rifle. I mean, you can be a little bit more aggressive with that. Have you ever done like, the jump to mule deer? He runs 150 yards and stops and looks back, and that's your shot. Because it's they got they do have a fatal flaw compared to the whitetails, where whitetails will never look back. But the mule deer, every now and then, you jump one. He runs about 100 or 200 yards and stops and looks back at you, and you get a little I've bit never, of time. I've never. Well, I mean, for rifle, I mean, I have had that, but you know, when you're doing the bow hunting stuff, yeah, you jump on runs 100, 100 yards. Well, he's He's got you're out of range. Yeah, I meant there. with the rifle. Like you're walking, you accidentally jump one with the rifle. He runs 200 yards, looks back at you, and by then you're set up and. Yeah, I I have not had that opportunity. <laughs> I think that would be kind of interesting. It'd be, just I'm surprised with as open as it is back there, they they stop and look back as often as they do. I'm curious animals, which makes it fun. Yeah, I mean I've done it a lot with my bow. You know, like you said, jump them, they run 200 yards and look back at you, and you're you're done with the bow because they're not going to stop forever. I mean, they're going to stop for like three seconds, try to figure mm-hmm. out what jumped them. And then they take off again. Whereas the white tail, he just books it across the horizon and he's gone. <laughs> so that's interesting. I had, when I did a, I did a, you know, another really fun thing about Western North Dakota is it's a fun place to do a Western whitetail hunt. Mm-hmm. It, if you're stuck in a tree stand all fall, Spending five days out there walking for whitetails is a completely different experience, and it's it's fun. I used to do it a lot because you could draw. You know, North Dakota is also unique. If you don't draw on your first draw, whatever your first app is, or I think the proper way to say is your first choice, yes. you keep all your points. But you still have a few more choices left. And so I was always picking units where I – if I drew a mule deer, I'd, I'd be able to mule deer hunt, but it wasn't the trophy zone, like where you apply. But if I don't draw my mule deer, I'm going to guarantee a whitetail take because nobody wants to whitetail hunt this unit. And so I was building mule deer points and getting whitetail tags for a few years in a row, whitetail buck tags. And I was pretty successful. I mean, I'm not shooting booners. I mean, there ain't no booners in southwest North Dakota whitetail hunting on public land, that's for sure. But it's still fun to go out and shoot a buck. And so... I was out there doing that, and I ran into these two guys, and one of them didn't have a tag and was from Las Vegas, but he was a pilot, so he could fly anywhere for free. And his other buddy was a pilot, and he had a mule deer doe tag. And apparently they're just great friends, and so the guy flew from Vegas to North Dakota and just hung out with them while he did this mule deer doe tag. All right, whatever, Hmm. good friends. Well, I was talking to him, and he goes, yeah, this is the third day of the hunt. I mean, we've seen some deer, but just nothing close enough yet. You know, we were set up last night, and we saw a group of does, and they started working our way, and, and they just never got there, never, never got to us. And I'm thinking, just like you're thinking, like, you guys have spent three days trying to shoot a mule deer doe out here? They're everywhere. Like, what what's going on here? And he starts telling me, like, a story after story of how their hunt's gone, and I'm like, ah. And I really wanted to say, like, guys ever think about just walking to the doe instead of waiting for the doe to walk to you but i never i didn't i don't know i didn't want to i just met these guys i didn't really want to you know tell them how to hunt (laughs) but it's like yeah it's like you you can just walk to it you don't have to wait for it you can just like oh hey there's a doe let's walk over there and shoot this thing so i don't know if they ever tagged out or not i mean I, i saw them the last morning they were heading out again and but it's just kind of funny how you some people I don't know if they were just trying to hunt them like whitetails back home. Like this looks like a good spot. I'm going to sit here, but it's completely different. And that's what I love about it is you can walk and check out country. 
you can see for miles. I mean, I was watching Bucks fighting on public that I could, you know, I had no option to go after him, but it was just fun to watch these two whitetails just tear up a wheat field over a doe. You know, it was mm-hmm. it's it's a ton of fun doing a West River whitetail hunt. So, but yeah, no, I agree with all that. Yeah, <clears throat> have you? Um, you said a couple weeks now we're gonna. We're going to hear back on the North Dakota. You talked about South Dakota. Did you have any other apps in for the West? Were you applying Montana, mm-hmm. Wyoming this year? Mm-hmm. No, for me, it's been, it was just that. I mean, I, being born and raised in Minnesota, I bought my lifetime licenses. So I'm set there forever. I mean, if you ever want to get a tag guarantee, like plan a hunt, I mean, Minnesota, it's, you can't go wrong with that. So um, I'll have my, hopefully, North Dakota rifle tag, bow tag, North Dakota, Minnesota bow tag. That's probably my standard uh, standard tag selection right there. So awesome. That'll keep me busy. That'll keep me busy at that. Well, in addition to the 40 we're buying, there's like 800 acres of public just down the road a little bit. And then you go like three, four miles down the road, and there's like 15,000 acres of public. So if you're ever looking for a new place to hunt in Minnesota, we'll have you down at the they call it the ranch, which is kind of funny. It's a little, a little bit of an overstatement to me, but they they printed out one of those big topo maps or like those big property boundary maps, and they called it the ranch. And I'm like, eh, forty acres of willows. I don't know if that really qualifies as a ranch, but that is, that's, that's that's exciting though. I'm happy for you guys. That'll yeah, be good. But we'll have you down. Come shoot some. He said there's tons of does. The, the blast owner said he shot two does off his deck with his bow. <laughs> So he said there's like unlimited dose. So I'm excited to start whacking and stacking, filling the freezer and making sausage. Uh, good for you guys. That's so, exciting. Yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks for being here, Tyler. Thanks for kind of just BS and catching up, talking, hunting. I think both of us could do this forever. So kind of uh, keep an eye on the clock. Otherwise, we'll never get anything done. Yeah, no, no doubt about that. Appreciate so. me being on here as well. Awesome. Well, after you get done with this busy fall, uh, Western uh, bow and rifle tags, we'll have you back on and share the share how the hunts went. Awesome, man. Take care. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for being here, and thank you for listening, folks.